Let's pray. Father, help us as we turn our attention now to your word and the preaching of your word. God, I pray that it would be fruitful. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to your people who are assembled here in person or gathered online. And that, God, you would change us. Holy Spirit, you'd speak to us and convict us and encourage us and send us that we may be light and salt, that we may put on display your glory for all to see. Help us now. Meet us here in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've had a lot of really encouraging things happening lately. All right, so last week we had worship in the park, and um, we, had, we had so many baptisms that uh, I was standing next to Dave Ekstrom, and um, Dave, who's been, had his hand in more than a few baptisms over the 40 years or so here, um, he kind of looked at me like, as we were like, I don't know, number eight, nine, ten, whatever, he's like, how many are there? And I was like, I don't know. And I was so um, excited about that. It was such an incredible um, experience. And so, and we've experienced that around the communion table together. Like, I have had more conversations in the last few months about just how God is moving in the midst of us um, than, I, than I have, like, over my previous, like, six or seven years. And it's not that God wasn't moving um, among us, but they're just, he's doing something really special. And it is really exciting. And I'm, like, anticipating um, every Sunday, like, God, what are, you, what are you going to do? But I also know that as surely as there are these high points, there are also the low points. And what's interesting about the tension, and even as I mentioned the snodgrasses, is like we have this joy and sorrow all at the same time, that even as we are experiencing the grace of God through his spirit, even as we're seeing people and praying for one another and loving one another and seeing people get baptized, we also are battling our own discouragements. For every person that we see who who comes and and we, we see them for the first time come to church, there's somebody else that we've invited 50 times and, and they've always said no. For every story of someone who gets baptized and comes to Christ, there are probably five, ten more in your own heart and your mind that you grieve over, people you grieve over, that you desperately want them to know Jesus. And no matter how many times or how many ways you share with them and try to encourage them in it, it just seems to, to return no fruit. We have times where we feel like we are growing. And some of you know like there are seasons where you feel like God is so close that you can just talk to him. He's like literally sitting next to you. I can just talk to him. And, it, and prayer is just effortless. And everything you do seems to, seems to be blessed. Not because it's easy, but because it, it matters and it's worthy. And then we have seasons where we get dry. We feel like God is distant. We feel like everything, we just keep hitting our, our heads against a wall and we keep running into brick wall after brick wall. I mean, who doesn't know what those roller coasters are like? And if you are new, because we have several people here uh, gathered with us even today who are new to the faith and newly pursuing Jesus and you are on fire right now and you cannot imagine, like, I don't know what it would ever be like to be dry. Like, how could you ever forget how wonderful this is? Well, we are broken, and we are in the process of being restored. We are already, but not yet, sanctified and restored. And so there will be those seasons. There will be seasons where we feel as though we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 
And if that's you, if you're in a season where you're like, I see awesome things. Maybe you're in a situation where you saw, you're seeing the fruit of other people's ministry right now even. You're seeing people come to Christ, but you're saying, well, why, why am I not experiencing that? Then I hope this message is an encouragement to you. Because Paul knows what that feels like. And we're going to see that here. We're going to see that coming into the city of Corinth that Paul was pretty discouraged. And it's not because things weren't happening. I mean, imagine all the ministry. How in the world could you be discouraged at this point in Acts after all that has happened? But he is. Because not only has there been fruit and he's seen people come to faith and seen incredible things happen and broken out of prison and all this stuff, at his past few stops, he's also been beaten met with anger, met with riots, and maybe even the worst yet, mocking and apathy in Athens. He actually describes how he was feeling in a different letter. In, in the letter 1 Corinthians, which is the first letter he wrote to this church that would form, as he's walking into the city, we get a glimpse into how Paul was feeling at the time. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and much trembling. You know what I love about that? Just a side note, this is why it's fun to go through Acts and to pull together kind of the timelines of these things. When he says that, he says, I didn't come to you proclaiming with God, God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, where did he just come from? Athens. And what's he doing in Athens? He is, he is debating with, he's in the middle of all these philosophers, the greatest philosophers of the time. He is in the situation with them where they're like, oh, what about this? What about this? So like brilliant people that are pushing against him. And what does he learn there? Christ crucified. That's what I'm going to preach. Because that's what brings life. And so he takes that and now he forms that and he gets kind of driven out of Athens with, with mocking and kind of apathy and he goes on to Corinth and there he's like, I came to you. I didn't, I learned, I learned. I'm not coming to you with lofty speech or wisdom. We just went through all of that. But I came to you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And that's the state of mind that he enters Corinth, which by the way, Corinth is a very difficult city. I'm not going to go into great detail about it, although this is probably the right time since most of the kids have departed, but let's just say Corinth is home to all kinds of debauchery, all kinds of immorality, all the, all the worst things that you can think of like in our morality and our culture. It is all on display in Corinth, and not only on display, but worshiped. And so prostitution and, and all of these different things, giving over themselves to just passions and desires and lusts of their heart. In fact, so much so, this is so the culture in Corinth, that that is likely the, um, the, the inspiration when Paul writes in, in Romans 1. 
In Romans 1, when he talks about how people had given themselves over to dishonorable passions, that they were consumed by them, that they had exchanged the truth of God for lies, that they had worshipped the creature and created things rather than the creator. All this immorality that Paul is describing in Romans 1 is likely about Corinth. And so Paul, in the midst of this, discouraged and beaten down and alone, walks into the city seeing all kinds of evil all around him. And so he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he preaches Christ, trying to persuade them. He's going to the one safe harbor that he could have, the synagogue in, in the city. Like, I'll go there. They'll want to hear about the Messiah. But it isn't going well. It says in, in verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And we'll get to, uh, to them in a situation here in a second. But, but ultimately, he's gone in to try to persuade Jews and Greeks, but it doesn't Go well. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews and that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It's hard not to read this and think of it as basically a big hissy fit. Like, Paul's done. He's done. Like imagine how weak and beaten down he is. He comes into the city of immorality. He goes into the synagogue to proclaim to them that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But instead of being met with people, the very people who should have been welcoming that news, his own people who should understand and believe him, they oppose him and revile him. And he says, enough. I'm done. I'm out. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul has reached a breaking point. How many times can you go into the synagogues that you love, the places of worship that you have loved since a child, speak to your people about the incredible news that the Messiah has come? How many times can you do that only to be rejected and gossiped about and lied about and beaten? These are the people who should be most excited, and instead, they revile him. And Paul is done. And maybe you have felt that. I have many times. And any time I get together with pastors, and if there's any kind of grief in that room, let me tell you something, it is never over the culture. We grieve over the culture. But the wounds that face pastors and ministry leaders always come from within the church. The people that you're pouring yourself out the most, like that's where the biggest wounds happen. And we know that. We see that in other areas of life. Any area of life, like whether you've been a parent or an employer who has desperately cared for your employees or whatever the situation is, you're in, in a place where you're like, or a friendship where you have just poured everything in and you're just, you've, you're giving and you're giving. But what comes back is reviling or gossip, or rejection. 
Maybe you've been praying for your coworkers for so long, but your work environment is still bad. You've taken a couple steps forward, but then a couple or it feels like three, four, six, eight back. Maybe you felt motivated to forgive and to reconcile, and you thought there was hope of that only for the people that you love to treat you like an enemy. Maybe you've given and you've given and you've given and you're not seeing any fruit and you just feel done. I think Paul felt done. But God is not done. And he will overwhelm Paul with encouragement after encouragement, which is laying a foundation for the words that he will speak to him. He's going to give Paul encouragement through people and he's going to give Paul encouragement directly through his words. And I hope those are an encouragement to you today. So he gives encouragement through people around him. And we see that really quickly. I'm going to outline it just because there's alliteration and that's fun. And friends, finances, and fruit. You'll never forget that now, all right? So friends, finances, and fruit. God encourages him through this, and I think he wants to encourage you in the same way. So he, he encourages him through friends. So first he meets Aquila and Priscilla. Right? These are new friends. So he encourages them with new friends. He worked side by side with them as tent makers. So yes, Paul, Paul would work. So Paul would go into a city, he would work, he would likely make some tents, sell them, get paid for his work, his labor, and then preach the gospel on the weekends and use that money that he made and, and saved to travel to the next city. So, so Paul was bivocational and he goes in there and he meets these two friends and he works with them as tent makers. And they would become such good friends that he would say this about them in Romans 16. He would say, Greet Prisca, which is Priscilla and Aquila, my fe- fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. That's pretty high praise, right? Like he's talking about are my co- these are my co-workers, my co-laborers. And he doesn't mean like, hey, here's a couple people who volunteered with me in the tent-making ministry. He's talking about people who risked their necks for him, and for the gospel. And he says, not only am I thankful, but every Gentile church that exists should also be thankful to these two. I feel that way right now. Some of you know what that's like to have friends who have joined with you, not just like worked alongside of you, but labored and risked their necks for you and for the sake of the gospel. And here in a few weeks, I have to say goodbye to one of my best co-laborers and co-workers. You know, Pastor Robbie came up here when even those of you who liked me, which was a smallish number, um, (laughs) even those of you, even that subset, you weren't really sure what in the world we were trying to do. And he moved his family from Texas up to here, left a church that he had planted and loved dearly to come here and serve alongside me here. And I just want to say, bottom line is, I don't know if I would have lasted over the years. So if you have been blessed, like I give thanks for Robbie, and if you have been blessed 
in the ministry here over the last six to seven years, if God has done something in your life here, then you also should be thanking God for Robbie's ministry. That's coming from the area of Robbie. Robbie, did you just say amen? <laughs> Praise Jesus for that. Like, see him there, and I heard amen, and I look up, and I'm like, that would be the least Robbie thing ever right there. That would have been... I'm just going to say it was. And then Robbie said, amen. That's when we tell the story here 20 years from now. I was like, amen. But really, like, amen. Give thanks for those friends. You have friends right now. If you have been in ministry serving and loving people, you have friends who have not only worked alongside of you, but have labored with you, wept with you, prayed with you, sacrificed to help you reach somebody else, serve in some way, joined alongside of you, risked their necks for you. If you have friends like that, give thanks to God. They are a gift and a blessing. And Paul gets new ones there. And he gets old ones too because Silas and Timothy join him in verse 5. Imagine how good it was for him to see them. And if you're sitting there saying, like, I don't have friends like that yet. Maybe you're at the beginning of your faith journey. Or you just have always, like, faith has just been kind of coming to church and kind of participating here and there. But now you're feeling like this call to, like, dive in more deeply. And you're saying, I I want friends like that. And here's my encouragement to you. Start by being a friend like that. Right? Like, this is what we tell our kids when they go off to school. Like, I'm worried if if they say, I'm worried that I, I won't make friends. Like, we tell them, be a good friend. This is what Jesus said when they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they ask, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which is flipping it around and saying, the question isn't who is your neighbor. The question is, what kind of neighbor are you? So we want to be that for one another. We want to thank God for those friendships. I'm going to take those steps to invest in them. So he receives that gift of encouragement. He also reaches, uh, receives the gift of encouragement through the finances. So there's a missionary gift that comes with it. So Silas and, and Timothy don't just come with themselves. They also bring money, a, a gift from the church in Philippi. And we know that later because in 2 Corinthians... Paul says to them, to this church in Corinth, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. See, the, the, Paul for, the pattern for Paul was he would go into a city and he would preach the gospel in the synagogues. But this big thing was he did not want to burden the people that he was preaching to. So he never would pass the plate during, uh, after a sermon or anything like that. He just didn't do it. He didn't ask the people that he was reaching to support his ministry. The support for his ministry came from people in the past who had been impacted and changed. And that's our philosophy here. And so if you're a guest or you're a visitor or you're seeking or anything like that, we don't ask you to give. In fact, we encourage you not to. You are our guest. And we are so thankful that you are here. But equally, we say, if this is your church home, we believe that God commands us through Scripture to give, to support. And we don't talk much about money, and we probably should talk more about it, because Jesus spoke a lot about it. But after 20 years in ministry, I can tell you what an encouragement financial giving is. Like, most of my life, I've been a tent maker like Paul. Some of you know and don't know, like, I've been in ministry for over 20 years, and coming here 
um, was only the second time in my life that I had been supported full-time to do ministry. And the first time lasted for like two years, if that. And so most of the vast majority of my ministry life has been being a tent maker, not actually physically making tents. You don't want me making a tent for you, but doing other things, doing other jobs, sometimes really weird jobs, sometimes like sales stuff, sometimes like video stuff, like whatever it was, but just doing whatever we could to make ends meet so that we wouldn't be a burden on the people that we were trying to reach. And that's the heart then here for all of us. Like it's a strange and beautiful gift to be supported full time. And that's how we all see it. It's not a, we don't, like the ministry staff here doesn't receive paychecks for for hours rendered. We receive support like our missionaries get. And that support is a gift and a blessing because it frees us up to go and serve and love at a higher bandwidth and with more time. And so that's where Paul is encouraged. He's encouraged because now he has time freed up. But more importantly, what he's encouraged by is it's evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in the people that he served. In Philippians 4, when he's talking to them about, thank you for supporting me, and he's he's saying it was kind of you to share in, in my trouble, he says this, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Here's the thing about financial giving. Part of the reason why we get uncomfortable talking about it is because it's such an idol in our culture. That's part of the uncomfortable thing. When you're in other countries that have different cultural idols and different issues, like they get upset about that kind of stuff, but they're usually like, a lot of, I've been in places where people are incredibly generous for whatever reason. Their their culture is not a consumeristic culture. It's not a culture that that believes that money buys happiness. It's not a culture that, that believes that money is power or whatever. Like if you're in a culture like that, again, they have their own cultural sin issues that we deal with, but that doesn't, is one of them. And then you talk about money and they're like, yeah, give, yeah, what do you need? But here we struggle because it pushes against us. It challenges our idols, our security, our control, our ability to take care of ourselves. But the reality is that we can't deny when Jesus talks about it, he's talking about the fruit of faith. It's demonstration that, you, that we believe what we say we believe. Because it's easy to say we believe things. It's a little more challenging to give up time and energy. But the toughest thing is to give up money. And so if I care about our ministry to this community and to this church family, and if I care about your continued sanctification in my own, then then we'll talk about this. And we're called to give cheerfully and generously and sacrificially. The method doesn't matter. So you notice like we we don't we don't pass a plate. That's part of that philosophy, the belief that, that that's, we, just, we just don't want to do that. We don't want to put that burden on people unduly. And so we have like offering boxes at the back. And for some people, that's an act of worship. As they come into the worship places, just like in biblical times, they come in, they give their offering, and then they walk into the place of worship. And we think that's a beautiful thing. But we also have the very, the flip side of the biblical, we have the very modern giving of giving online, which is, which is what I do. And just full disclosure, like I set up recurring giving because I'm forgetful, which is 
my wife might say irresponsible, but like it's probably not good for me as a pastor to come up here and be like, I'm irresponsible. But just, just when it comes to like discipline and that kind of thing, like that's hard for me. And so I really struggled a long time ago of like, well, but I feel like if I'm not writing out the check every week and like putting that in the plate or doing that thing, like then it doesn't mean as much. And God just convicted me personally of that. I was saying like, that's, that's silly. I just want you to give. And so that's, that's how I do it. But however you do it, you do it for the glory of God, demonstrating your faith that his kingdom is worthy. And it also is a reminder of giving thanks for God's provision for our families and for our, our neighbors and for one another so that we can do ministry. Because here's the thing, whatever job you have, whatever, whatever source of income comes to you, that is God's way of providing for you to free you, not only to support your family, but to love others and for the work of the gospel and the kingdom. That's what it is. And so we express that in, in giving back to him. We express our thanks and our joy and our trust in him. So Paul is encouraged by these financial gifts. And finally, he's encouraged by the fruit that he sees on display. So it's on display through the giving. He's saying like to this church later, he tells them like, that was such an encouragement to me because I saw your hearts in it. It's such a blessing. And that has been an encouragement over the years here, how this church has generously and radically given. We've had stories from missionaries who've said that this church has been such a blessing because every time they needed anything, someone from this congregation has stepped up and helped them. But he also sees the fruit and hears stories about how they are doing. So he hears good news. Um, Silas and Timothy bring with them good news of what's going on in Thessalonica. So we already talked about this, so I'm not going to go too much into it. But he, he, they, when they return in 1 Thessalonians, it, he talks about how they, when, when Timothy came and he brought good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And he says, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So again, time and place. Paul in Corinth, discouraged, beaten, beaten down, just being done, and he hears Silas and Timothy come and say, hey, the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, they're doing really well. And Paul is encouraged. And sometimes we need to do that. We need to give thanks when we hear of other good things. You may be distracted over here and thinking about these things over here, but be encouraged. If we have eyes to see, we will see the fruit of other things that are going on. And it doesn't take away the struggle or the pain or the grief of what's going on here, but it is water to our souls. And it is comfort. And it is a gift in the midst of hard times. And he will receive that more with fruit than with the Gentiles as he moves on. Verse 8, it says Crispus. So after he leaves the Jews, he says, I'm done. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so even in the midst of his discouragement, in the midst of his struggles, he's still preaching the gospel and there's fruit. And God is kind to encourage him with this fruit. And God is kind to encourage us in the midst of this with this fruit. That story that Sarah shared, we all get to take part. And I love that she turned that around and said, it wasn't just church grandpa that blessed my child. It was the families around that sat near us in worship that showed kindness to us. It was the people that asked how, how we were doing, that, that greeted us warmly, welcomed us into this church family. 
So look at that fruit. You get to take part in that. You get to enjoy that. Some of you sitting here are answered prayers. Every story that was shared last week, we all got to play a part of it. We all get to share in the joy of those stories and those testimonies and those baptisms. And you, I know, have seen fruit. If you have eyes to see, be encouraged by it. The enemy wants to focus your attention on the branches that are not bearing fruit. But the Spirit is saying, look, I am bringing life. Be encouraged. And all of it screams, it's worth it. We get to see that. We say, it's worth it. Can't stand there on the, the shores of that river and see person after person after person get baptized and think like, I don't know if this is worth it. It's worth it. What else would you rather do with your time? Where else would you rather give money? Who else would you rather link arms with? It's worth it. So he's been encouraged by new friends, old friends, financial help, good news about the church in Thessalonica, fruit, and the ministry to the Gentiles. And that is a lot of encouragement. But God is not done. And this is where I'm going to finish. And I'm just going to warn you, this might get a little preachy, but I love you, and I think God has encouraging words for you. Because I believe God is just building all of this evidence for Paul to speak to him. And as God often does, he does the work, he lays the foundation, remember this, remember this, remember this, and then he speaks. And that encouragement stands apart, and I believe these words are for you, church. So I want you to look at what God has done. Think about how God has given encouragement through friends, through his provision, through seeing the incredible stories and the fruit of ministry and hear his voice. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. He says, do not be afraid. Listen, we make up all kinds of things to be afraid of. That old thing with like kids saying there's a monster in our closet, like we adults don't change at all. All kinds of monsters and all kinds of closets that we're afraid of that are likely never there. Never going to happen. You say you get an opportunity, a new co-worker, or you have an opportunity to, to maybe um, share the gospel with somebody, and you're thinking in the back of your mind, like, oh, I know how this works. I'm going to share with them. They're going to think I'm crazy. I'm going to invite them to church. They're going to say no. This conversation is probably going to go poorly. Or we look around at the culture and we're like, well, what if the laws change? What if this happens? What if that happens? It's all these what ifs. And most of those things never actually happen. And the things that do happen come from the sovereign hand of God. So we are called, do not be afraid. Because what is comforting in this statement is not that we have nothing to fear. The comfort we draw from that statement is in the one who is saying, do not fear. This is critical. If you are worried that your house is collapsing and you're worried that the foundation is shattered and your house is going to fall in on you one night and I come over to your house and I kind of look around, poke around and be like, nah, I think you're good. Looks fine to me. That should not be comforting. I don't know what I'm talking about. And I can't do anything about it even if I did know anything I was talking about. 
But that is not how God comforts us. And that is not who is saying, do not be afraid. The command to not be afraid is only as helpful as the one who is saying it is powerful and wise and in control. And this is the one who says to you, do not be afraid. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen? That's who says, do not be afraid. Not some dopey pastor who's like just trying to motivate you. Like, hey, don't worry about it. I'll be fine. The God of the universe who created all things says, do not be afraid. Some of you are facing ministry opportunities that you feel God calling you to and you are afraid. What if I don't have enough time? What if I don't have enough energy? What if it fails? What if, what if, what if, what if? If God is calling you, then go. Do not be afraid. Listen to his voice. Second thing he says is keep going. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Even if it's hard, even if you're not seeing fruit, ministry is not about effectiveness. It is about faithfulness. Do not be silent. There are many in this area who are desperate to hear the good news. Who's going to tell them? It's us. You've got to keep going. It may, now maybe it's time for a change. Maybe you've been hitting your head against a wall and doing the same thing over and over again. And maybe what God is trying to do is get your attention and saying, I've been doing this. I want, I want to shift your attention over here. Maybe that's with what you're doing or it could be with people. It is very easy when you get fixated, when you're trying to minister to people and share the gospel, to get fixated on a person. And, and I won't bore you with the long version of the story, but if you remember, I, I've shared before about how I went into a, co- a coffee shop in Colorado and shared the gospel over and over and over again with this one person because I thought, you're the one that God is wanting to save. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to keep preaching and preaching and preaching to you. And while I was doing that, and while I'm met with all kind of apathy from this one barista, this other barista standing over the side was like, hey, can I come to the church? And I was like, wait, what? Oh, okay, never mind. Forget you. All right, now I'm going to go over here. All right? So like that, that mentality of saying like, don't get fixated on that. Like you're not God. Be faithful to share with whoever's in front of you and listen to God and don't quit. And don't quit because you, you feel like you're not equipped for it. For crying out loud, don't be ashamed of your weaknesses. That's why we face trials, is that we would be dependent on Jesus. That we would find the strength that we have in him. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's Paul saying that. When God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Again, time and place. Where is he saying this? Who is he writing this to? He's writing to the church where he walked in and he's just like, I'm done! 
And God in that moment says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. What weaknesses do you have that God cannot overcome? Disabilities, lack of social skills, lack of financial resources. Have you ever thought that those, those are not hindrances to you seeing God's work, but God's mercy to let you see his power? When we are weak, we are strong. His power is made perfect because it turns out the only thing that diminishes the power of God in our lives is our insistence that we don't need it. So when we're weak, boast in that. And then he gives the haymaker. I am with you. This is the greatest encouragement he can give. Friendships are a gift and a blessing. Financial help is a gift and a blessing. Seeing fruit in the ministry is a gift and a blessing. But God being with you is bread for life. It is what sustains you and me in this. All of this is the crescendo to the most important thing. Because I can tell you, I could see all the baptisms in the world. I could have people write nice little notes like encouraging me in this ministry. But at the end of the day, if God is not with us, I don't want it. That's why I think communion has been so powerful. It's just this like a reminder. God is with us. He is with us. I can't say anything to you that is more encouraging than you feeling the presence of God. He is saying to Paul, he's pointing him back to all the things that have happened, the friendships, the financial help, the fruit, and it's all evidence of the one thing that matters. I am with you. And he goes on, he says, no one will attack you or harm you, which is a temporary promise, which I don't have time to go into to that. But it ultimately says nothing can happen to you apart from God's hand. And then he gives this charge. I have many people in the city, and this is huge. God has people everywhere. There are people right now. There are people in whom God is working right now in this place, in your workplace tomorrow morning at your school, at your job, in your neighborhood, at the grocery store. You walk into any place and God is moving and he is working. And when the people of God say, God, I'm yours. I exist for you when I go grocery shopping. I exist for you when I go to work. I exist for you when I go to school. I exist for you when I go to the baseball game or the football game. I exist for you. Whatever you are doing, I want to be a part of it. There are stories everywhere. And so much of what we're doing is just laying the foundation. Be, be the person that people want to come to when God speaks to them and they need to know what it means. It's one of the things I've tried to do at different places. I used to do it all the time in coffee shops, just kind of be the impromptu chaplain and just trying to lay a foundation and say, when God, God like basically God, when you speak to them, like I can't convince them, I can't say anything to them that's going to change their mind. But when you speak to them, I pray that I have treated them in such a way and been with them in such a way that when they say, I feel like something's happening, I don't know what it means, that they would think to come to me to ask what's going on. And you can do that too. This is what God is doing. And it's all so encouraging to Paul that he ends up staying in Corinth. So he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So if you've received any encouragement from God, 
through his words here. I would ask you then, what, what now then? What is God encouraging you and building you up to do? What step is he calling you to take? As you remember the encouragement of friends, maybe it's to conviction, I need to be a friend. I need to dive deeper into community. Maybe it's like taking the simple step of going to area lunch, to seeking somebody out after the service and just going up and praying for them or offering to pray for them or connect with them. Maybe that's your step. Maybe it's to ask questions about your giving, your financial giving, to say, I want to, God, I want to trust you in this. I want to give radically and generously and receive the blessing that you have for me in it. Maybe it's to, to step out in faith and to do something new. Maybe it's to go and volunteer um, in, in Awana. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, like take that step. And whatever it is, remember this. Our God is a God of encouragement. He is not the angry boss pushing you to achieve more. He's not the disgruntled parent asking you for the 28th time to unload the dishwasher. He is God. He is a good father who is pleading with you, exhorting you, encouraging you to take part with him in the work that he's doing. And it is beautiful. He wants us to be recipients of the joy of being his co-laborers. Things won't go perfectly. Ask church grandpa. Because for every story, that is, and how incredible is that story, there are also weeks where you're thinking, I don't know if I want to do this. These kids are driving me crazy. I don't know if I can do this one more time. It won't go perfectly. There are still many trials and tribulations in front of Paul. We know that even with this encouragement, there are many trials and tribulations, but this is a key moment of encouragement for him in his ministry. And the same goes for you. There will still be many trials and tribulations even as you take steps of faith in this. If you are going to follow Jesus, there will be trials and tribulations, but hear his voice. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, what, what an incredible Sunday to be together, to worship, to sing songs to you, to take communion together, to be reminded that you are with us, to hear Sarah's incredible story. God, I just am encouraged. I'm just encouraged by what you are doing here. So many stories in our midst. And they are all evidence of the thing that is most important and most encouraging. You are with us. And Lord, we hear you. We know that you see us, that you love us, and that you're with us. I pray that that truth, which our feelings do not always testify to, our, our logic and our reason do not always testify to, but you testify to, to the truth of your word and the power of your spirit as we have seen and felt and tasted. Lord, please 
use that encouragement in our hearts to stir us so that we would lift our eyes upward and receive from you this encouragement, but then also move outward and encourage our others in the way you've encouraged us, to comfort others in the way you have comforted us, to share with others the good news that you have given to us. We trust you. We love you. We need you. Thank you for giving us this beautiful season of gifts of encouragement that you are with us.